I have found an article about the most popular Thanksgiving side dish in every state. Oh, here we go. So in the state of Tennessee, where you're at right now, the most popular Thanksgiving side dish is hash brown casserole. Huh. I don't have that. That's not, we don't, never done that. Well, here in Minnesota, we call that a hot dish. So in Texas, the most popular Thanksgiving side dish this year is creamed corn. I would have thought it had been like brisket. (laughs) As a side dish. Yeah, exactly. Here is the most popular Thanksgiving side dish in the state of Minnesota, a charcuterie tray. That's just what you eat while you're in line to get your food. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 250, Quarter Millennia. Actually, 250 is a cardinal. Cardinal. Hmm. That's why we're calling this our cardinal episode. Well, I like the cardinals. My dad was a big cardinals fan. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Episode 250, this will be fun. A little bit different, uh, which we'll get into more here in a minute. I'm Reed Smith. That's Chris Boyer. And as always, we're appreciative of you uh, tuning in and checking us out. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you're coming back. For round two or round 250, we certainly appreciate that. So quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health over there. You can certainly check out all things rated and relevant to this show. Also, you can sign up for the TPS report. It's a weekly email. It comes out every Monday, five articles to start your week. We'd love for you to do that as well. So we'll pause here for a quick second. We'll be back to uh, talk a little bit more about episode 250. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So Reed, a couple of weeks ago, you referred to this episode as being a milestone episode for us. Because now we've hit the 250 mark. And in order to make this milestone something a little bit different, we decided we're going to do a little bit different format today. A little bit different. Why not? I mean, we're in charge. We can do whatever we want, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, 250. So obviously there has been 
well north of 250 different people on the show. There have been a number of people that have been here more than once, but there's also been some episodes where we've had more than one guest. I would say there's at least 250 different, if not more. So I thought, and you agreed that it might be good to revisit some of those. Actually, look back at all of the interviews we did and maybe pull out ones that we feel are our most favorites and not to play favorites, but ones that maybe we had some specific memories or we liked the content. Honestly, this could be a series that we do forever, right? Because there's so many different interviews that we do and each and every one of them is great. But in this particular case, we have some of, I guess what we would consider some of our four most memorable interviews over the last 250 shows. There's plenty of them. And, you know, we, I think we tried to keep this somewhat relative to ones we haven't maybe even talked a whole lot about. I mean, there's been different award winners and we could go back to the well and just keep telling you the same, you know, I think the structure of the marketing department or something like that has always been one of our most downloaded episodes. And so these are a few other ones that are kind of top of mind and, you know, through the years, you know, really felt like, and maybe even now topically would be ones to revisit. And the very first interview we're going to do takes us all the way back to episode number five. Wow. That was back in March of 2017, Reed, with this first interview. The episode itself was about voice of customer, which still coincidentally happens to be something very top of mind today. And our guest expert from that episode was Matt Gov from, at the time, he worked for Piedmont. He doesn't work there anymore. He's moved on. And we had a chance to sit down and talk about what is required for organizations to kind of infuse the voice of customer into service line design, marketing, communications, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Matt's uh, a good friend and certainly appreciate his advocacy and support over the years. And, you know, always fun to see him. Of course, we haven't done that in a couple of years because nobody goes to conferences uh, until here recently. But what I really always enjoyed about Matt was his point of view and having a point of view. Um, and so he's not scared to, uh, to share and uh, it was great having him on as we were we were getting started way back in, in March of 2017. So let's maybe cut away here and uh, revisit, gosh, what is almost five years ago now or something like that. So here we go. All right. This is the Ask the Expert section of our podcast. And today I am very pleased to introduce a special guest, an expert in this, in our topic today, um, a voice of customer, which is Matt Gov, the Chief Consumer Officer at Piedmont Healthcare. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, you know, when Reed and I were thinking about this topic of voice of customer, uh, immediately we thought, who's the expert on this? Who is known in this space, in this industry? And our names immediately went to you. So, um, and I think you're kind of known for that. So tell, tell, before we get started, though, on voice of customer, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what your role is at Piedmont? Sure. Happy to. So um, I'm the chief consumer officer, which is a, a weird title. Uh, you don't see it that often in healthcare. You don't see it that often anywhere, quite honestly. But the reason we decided to go with that, and I'm responsible for a lot of the functions you would expect, marketing, communications, a lot of community outreach and external affairs, 
but I'm also responsible for the consumer and patient experience for Piedmont Healthcare, which is a seven-hospital system based in Atlanta, piedmont.org, if you really want more information about us. So uh, we chose the title Chief Consumer Officer because we wanted to make it clear both internally and externally that we are building our product, and we do think of this as a product, a service and product that we deliver to our customers, um, we choose to put the consumers at the center of our product design and believe that by reacting to consumer needs and understanding how to best serve consumers, uh, we'll ultimately be able to um, differentiate Piedmont and, and continue to deliver the, the high-quality clinical care that we're known for in, in our market and around the country. Yeah, well, in fact, healthcare has a big problem with the word consumers, too. I just had this conversation with a really interesting group of people we pulled together to talk about uh, customer experience. The conversation we had was, what do we call these people? I've been calling them customers. But some of the people in the room, and these are consumer experience leaders from other industries. We had Delta, Apple, Chick-fil-A, and a bunch of other people who were known for delivering great experiences in the room, and, and they said, customer feels really transactional. Isn't healthcare a relationship business? Shouldn't you guys be more focused on how to create this sense of relationship and, and caring? How do you extend that, that clinical caring idea that a lot of the, the providers in our systems have to the rest of the customer experience? And so we're now kicking around Maybe we should be calling our customers guests. Maybe they shouldn't be patients, which, which patients really does sound like you're the subject of some sort of research experiment. <laughs> That's not cool. Um, maybe they shouldn't be consumers because that's sort of generic and, and uh, depersonalized. Maybe it should be guests. We're now looking at new and different ways of approaching that, mostly because it could, it should have an impact internally on how our 16,000 caregivers across our system take care of um, and treat the people who need us and in, in come into our system. Tell me a little bit about what, how you, you at Piedmont, you yourself, define what voice of customer is. Uh, what I realized after I got into healthcare is we spend more time asking more questions of our customers than most industries do, right? We are constantly seeking feedback. I know at Piedmont, um, we send surveys to every single office visit patient or customer, whatever we want to call them, um, and to a, a large percentage of our inpatient stays as well. Everybody gets these surveys. The voice of the customer in its raw form is just the collection of data and feedback that you're getting from your customers, people who interact with your system. I think the bigger, the bigger challenge is um, how do you organize that data? How do you utilize that data? Um, and for us, it's also how do we publish that data so that other consumers can have the benefit of existing customers' experiences. That's critical to me. I think if you're only using the feedback from your customers to improve service, then you're missing a large opportunity and a large piece of the, the overall marketing puzzle um, because 
those, as I've seen in our organization, it takes a long time to use that feedback to really effectively change the experience for a consumer. Um, but you can um, pretty rapidly um, affect both the internal behavior of your caregivers and the external choice of consumers by providing them with other consumers' feedback. Well, and you've been known, you were one of the first organizations that were out there publishing, you know, uh, consumer feedback, reviews, ratings in a public way on your website. But if you could, um, why why don't you tell us a little bit about some of, uh, like, the? that's just part of what you're doing. How are you, like at Piedmont, approaching voice of customer, that approach, um, and applying that to care? So we're, um, yeah, we were the second system in the country to uh, create star ratings and publish reviews uh, for our physicians on our website. We're up to almost a thousand physicians with star ratings and reviews now. Um, we, we have used that, that specific information to better engage our physicians in understanding what the experiences our customers are having with them. Um, and so I know many of our physicians now regularly check their own profile. And the funny thing is, is that they get the information from the public profile faster than they're getting it from our internal reports uh, back from, from Press Ganey. We are also seeing continued improvement in our scores. Um, we use Press Ganey to administer our uh, regular patient surveys and um, our physician groups are now, so as a whole, the physician group is in the 90th percentile in America in terms of customer um, satisfaction. And so we continue to push that higher and higher. We're already high. We're going higher. Where I'm focused, more focused now, is whether or not we're asking the right questions and that's a, and that is a, um, that's an enormous thing to start to tackle, uh, because it 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 goes into survey design. It also goes into survey um, application. And so, are we? Do we really need to send a survey to every single customer? Um, I'm not sure that we do in order to get the appropriate feedback. Um, I'm looking forward to us really digging into the question because it was I was trying to figure out. How do we give more information to the customer that needs it? And I was using uh, my own experiences and the experiences of everybody I know as examples. Uh, and I'll, I'll use you an example, as an example. So Chris Boyer, when he wants to go out to dinner, um, and it's not just the regular old neighborhood place, gets on open table or somewhere else and looks up things around him and wants to, he won't buy a $15 meal without first reading what other people think about it, right? It, it, same goes for any product. You won't buy a set of rechargeable batteries without reading what five other people on Amazon bought about the damn things. It's, we've gotten to this insane place where um, we, because the information is available, we don't make decisions without other people's um, input anymore. And how does that translate to healthcare? Well, I, I think about it procedurally. So I go to my primary care physician. I've got a, he, he or she expe- suspects that I have a hernia, all right? Um, you get the imaging study done. You're like, yep, hernia, go to this general surgeon. You go to this general surgeon. General surgeon's like, yep, I'm a surgeon, so I'm going to cut you. And here's what I'm going to do while I'm cutting you. And, the, and so you, as the patient, typically are like, oh, oh hold, let's hold on. <laughs> hold on. 
and you have questions. Uh, how complicated is this procedure? What's the, what's the success rate? But you also have really more basic questions, thinking like a normal person and not like a healthcare person. You're thinking, okay, if I do this, how long am I out of work? Right? How, how long did it take um, the last patient to get back to a normal lifestyle? Um, if, and so we're not even asking those questions. Um, and our surveys aren't designed with the consumer in mind. This is not a specific knock on Presgany, but we use Presgany, and so they can take it personally if they wish. Um, Their surveys are not designed around what the customer needs to know about the physician, the procedure, the system, whatever. Their surveys are designed almost exclusively as an internal process improvement tool. I can't even tell customers what they need to know right now. And it's because we're not asking the right questions. As you talk about, you know, designing, redesigning the approach of how you're or redesigning the surveys you're going to do for voice of customer, how do you know that the customer themselves know what they want? They don't always. You know, there's the well-worn examples we all have, uh, particularly of technologies that have been introduced to us. We're like, where'd that come from? My iPhone being the most, most obvious You've got these things that people show you, and you're like, yes, I need that. And I had no idea before then that I needed it. I am not getting feedback from customers to design the next thing necessarily. I am getting feedback from customers to help answer the questions of potential customers. Right? That's the, and that, you, you actually, um, and I just realized it. You just crystallized part of the problem <laughs> with the press gainies and and um, uh, uh, NRCs and all the other people that do surveys. Those are not tools that are going to help us move to the next thing. Um, those are tools to, uh, designed around just what we think we need to know. Um, and there's all sorts of um, bias in how people respond to healthcare-related surveys, which is why you want to dig really specifically into their experience, right? Let's, let's ask specific questions about their experience because that's going to help us better design that existing experience for somebody. Um, but also, more importantly, surfacing that information is going to help consumers make a decision about whether or not they want to choose us. It's not the only touch point for somebody when they're making a decision, um, but it is more consistent with the way they make decisions in the rest of their lives. As we move into this consumer world, the experience is being defined by other experiences that people have outside of healthcare. So the minute that I can order a latte from Starbucks on my phone and the damn thing is sitting on the counter when I walk in, that's, that has changed what people understand to be possible now. As we think about what we need to do for the future, I can promise you that we're not sitting around with just with a bunch of healthcare focus groups. As I mentioned to you earlier, we're talking to the leaders in, the, in other industries from airlines to retail um, to fast food, to hospitality. We had Hilton there as well. We're talking to them about, hey, here's our system. It sure is terrible. How do we fix this? What tips would you give to people that want to go down this path? Right now, the, the best thing that people can do is just get into the game and start, start publishing 
star ratings, reviews, information that people can use. Um, you, can, you can optimize that later. Um, secondarily, start to look at other measures of your experience. So we use Net Promoter Score. Net Promoter Score is a widely used metric amongst consumer-focused uh, companies from Amazon to Apple to Starbucks to uh, Chick-fil-A. A lot of the folks that I've mentioned who are experienced experience-focused companies. Down the road, you can start to examine, is the way we're surveying people um, correct? That's a, that's a deep question, one that we're examining right now. Um, I think you can get lost in that rabbit hole if you haven't even done the basics yet. So don't, don't go straight to the advanced move. Start with the basic publishing of consumer information, consumer um, review uh, data that you already have. Start with that. Here's another thing that people should consider. I'm assuming that most of the people enjoying this uh, undeniably great podcast uh, are marketing people. Um, build a partnership or do a hostile takeover of the experience function in your organization. It's a, it's a, it starts with a partnership, but hopefully over time it ends up with more organizations allowing their marketing department, which should be the department that knows the most about your customers, allowing the marketing department to help define the experience, to shape the product, and, and quite frankly, over the long, long term, um, the marketing department should be informing and help design system strategy. Where are we going as an organization? Because the voice of the consumer is one of, if not the most critical part of figuring out what we need to be doing next. Matt, thank you so much for all this insight. You gave a lot of information. All right. Special thanks to Matt for those great insights. Still relevant today, Reed, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I, you know, encourage folks if they if they don't know Matt to to reach out and connect. He's uh, a great resource in the industry. So the next one is an interview that you selected, Reed. Why don't, why don't we talk? Why don't you set it up for us? Yeah. So episode one fifteen. So jump ahead one hundred and ten episodes from the prior one to April the seventeenth of twenty nineteen. Uh, which still seems like a long time ago. It is a long time ago. Uh, we had a good friend of the show, Carrie Lykin on. Carrie Lykin from Yext. Many know her as, as someone who originally started a lot of the healthcare practice over at Google and then has been at Yext for some years. A mainstay at all the industry conferences and super, super smart. This episode was actually titled, Your Website Isn't Your Website Anymore. And just that idea that, you know, when we talk about digital front door and things like that, uh, it's not about what you own anymore. It's not able to structure what people are going to see, and we've we've got to get comfortable with that. Yeah, what's interesting about this too, Reed, is that Carrie and I sat down. We were going to be talking about something completely different, and right before we start to do the interview, we started talking about this concept: the website isn't a website anymore. And completely by happenstance, we just decided to have an interview about this. So this is really one of those spontaneous interviews. So without further ado, let's roll the tape. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. 
In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of our podcast. And today, <laughs> I've actually been talking with you, Carrie, for a little while now. And now we're actually going to get on the microphone and actually start having this conversation. So this is Carrie Lichen. Thank you for coming to the show today. I get to actually be here face-to-face. Uh, this is my my treat. So I excited. Mean, Carrie, I, I hear you a lot. You're on a lot of podcasts. You're also <laughs> you're so prolific, I was mentioning, online. And you've been on our show a couple of times mm-hmm. before. It's been fun every time. Absolutely. But there are maybe some people listening in that do not know about you. So why don't we do an introduction? Okay. Let people know who you are. All right. Okay. So I'm Carrie Lichen. I'm the head of healthcare at Yext. And Yext is a software platform that organizes information, anything that somebody could be searching for, and then we syndicate it to a lot of different places like your website, like Google, Vitals, Wellness.com, Apple, etc. So if somebody's asking a question, a patient's asking a question, we can hopefully provide that answer to Mm -hmm. that patient. I've been at Yext for two and a half years. I was at Google for eight and a half years before Mm -hmm. that, and I've been talking about the digital patient journey for Ever. Forever. 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 I know. And that's how you and I originally got to know each other. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about that. And it's been a long, strange trip. And now here we are. <laughs> so you were talking about it. Yes. You know, one of the things that you do is you take content and you and, and how did you describe it again? You take content and federate it to multiple different places. Is that right? Is that a fair way to say that? Yeah, that's a fair way of saying it. We structure data. Okay. So our platform houses data in a structured way. And then we enable for that data to combine in a certain way and be surfaceable. So if somebody's searching for a particular doctor on Google and they're searching for a cardiologist near me who accepts Blue Cross, who's rated four stars or above, hopefully the data can surface in such a way that Dr. Smith, who might fulfill all of those criteria points, Mm -hmm. that Dr. Smith surfaces first on Google. So structured data. Structured data. Quite honestly, structured data is so critically important to those of us that are doing digital in this space. Well, I would say anybody who does digital, really. It's not just healthcare. But it's something that a lot of times people don't think of first. Me, as a digital person at a health system, I often talk about our website. And I talk about social media. And I talk about email and all of these things. And, and our CRM and et cetera. But those are really just the platforms to basically execute structured data. Mm-hmm. Structured data in and of itself is probably one of the most critical things yeah. in a digital marketing person's toolkit, wouldn't you say? Yeah, for sure. But I think that in healthcare, it's not really yet recognized. I'm mm. starting to hear it be talked about quite a bit more, mm-hmm. which makes me really excited. Right. But it's not really the first thing that organizations think about. And the paradigm shift that needs to happen is that it needs to become the first thing that mm. organizations think about because it is the foundation of literally everything. It could be the foundation of an email campaign. Mm -hmm. It could be the foundation of your CMS and your website. It could be the foundation of your find a doctor. It's the foundation Mm -hmm. of discoverability on Google. It is literally the foundation. And if you don't know 
where your doctors are, what your doctors treat, where your facilities are, symptoms, conditions, treatment, all of these elements of, and I like to think about it from the search perspective of somebody's looking for something. Where's the data? Where does it live? And how do you get that answer to what somebody's looking for? It's data at the end of the day. And, you know, I say this sometimes when I talk to people on my team that are looking at a web page or, you know, wanting to improve the site on the web page. And I say, you know, a lot of times on a web page, on a, on a, a website, a hospital website or otherwise, there's a lot of content that people that actually they did not see. Yes. Right? You're only seeing the words that are on the page, maybe yeah. how it's structured in a visual way. But when we're talking about structured data, we're talking about elements. Like the, we're going deep. This mm-hmm. is deeper than taxonomy. This is like getting into elements of the content that is structured in a way so that other systems can read it. Am I right? Yeah, that's true. The website is changing. Yeah. And the way that the website is being discovered is changing. Mm -hmm. And people are finding information off of a website in Mm -hmm. healthcare, most especially, more so than they are going to a website. Mm -hmm. And what I hear with health systems is that when they're doing these website redesign projects, which tends to be the trend, Mm -hmm. a lot of organizations are still thinking about content and all of that undiscovered information. Mm -hmm. And yet, when somebody goes to the website, they're not necessarily always looking for that. In fact, many times they're not looking for all of that. That's why it's Mm -hmm. undiscovered. Mm -hmm. So how do you effectively maximize when somebody does get to the site itself? How do you maximize surfacing up what exactly it is that they're looking for? So what you're saying is that when, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about like our find a doctor tool Mm -hmm. or we find like we want to have a location search or a condition search or things like that. The structured data actually allows those entry points to actually find that content. Is that correct? Yeah. It basically allows for connection. So think about, we were just talking about this earlier. Think about the simplistic, most beautiful search experience. Okay. Google. That would be Google. (laughs) Yeah. Which I got to spend a lot of time (laughs) there. But if you think about that experience, and I remember when Marissa Meyer was uh, in charge of that visual, that landing page when you went to Mm google.com, she forever said, nothing will find itself on this landing page except for the search bar. Mm. And so people were trained to search in a way because there was nothing else that you could click on. So you would just go to that bar and you'd ask lots of questions. Right. And then it was up to Google to try to parse out what exactly that searcher was looking for to surface up blue links and Mm -hmm. then little snippets and now answers. Mm -hmm. If you think about that experience and you parlay that over to a health system website Mm -hmm. or a food service website, like Mm -hmm. think about Chipotle, or if you think about a hotel website, instead of cluttering everything, just ask somebody what is it that they're looking for. And... The data that underlies all of that, when you can build relationships among the data, somebody's looking for that doctor who's near me, who's rated four stars, who treats mitral valve repair. It's those relationships and connection points within the data that can then be surfaced when somebody's asking that question Mm -hmm. on that very simple search bar. Because people don't go in a very linear fashion and say, I'm looking for doctors and then I'm going to drop down a search bar that, or a, a drop down insurance. menu that says this type of insurance <laughs> yeah. and um, in this zip code. Mm-hmm. That's not how people think about no. searching for data nowadays, right? No, you're searching in a way on Google and then when you finally come to a, a system website, you're boxing yourself in. Mm-hmm. Organizations are boxing people into this search experience mm-hmm. and people don't like that. 
and people want to find something in a much more natural, organic way because they've been trained for 20 years to do it since right. 1998. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like almost like uh, websites nowadays that have that capability. It feels like the old Alta Vista days, or, <laughs> you know, like where you have to choose the drop down <laughs> yeah. menus to actually search. But now Google, because Google set the standard of making yeah. it so easy for people to find information, mm -hmm. structured data suddenly becomes critically important to, yeah. to, to any digital channel that you're on. I mean, we, we're beating up websites, which I think we should. Right? We should beat Let's, them up. Well, think about it. Websites aren't necessarily the destination anymore. And there is a big announcement about uh, Amazon mm -hmm. and you know, HIPAA-enabled skills now and That's people crazy. using voice devices. I was looking at some of our newest data and almost 30% increase year over year in the 65-year-old-plus population just utilizing voice devices. Structured data is good for discovery that way too. Mm -hmm. And the website, there's no screen involved in that. Hmm. So if you think about all of the different distributed ways that people are finding information now, it's not always a website. We should be questioning the website. We right. need to be thinking differently about the website. And we need to be thinking patient or consumer first. And how is it that they're getting there? And how is how had they gotten there? And how do we replicate that experience? That's an interesting point here. Because if you structure your data in such a way that it makes it easy for a search engine to find it, whether mm -hmm. that search engine is on your site or anywhere else, mm -hmm. then that suddenly makes your data that much more freer. From, oh, so free. That's from, right. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. It, 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 it frees it from the, the, the content management. Well, maybe not content management system. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think content management system or CMSs are a little bit misunderstood, mm -hmm. right? Because I think a lot of times people associate a CMS to a particular type of web presence yes. or a presentation layer, right? Right. And we've talked a lot about the differences between uh, content layer and presentation layer in what they call headless. Yes. Headless configurations. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? I love it. Headless. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. When you have, a, when you have that, uh, that ability to, to spin up something very quickly. So if mm -hmm. you're looking for, again, Somebody's coming to a website and they're looking for something very unique. Mm -hmm. When they're looking for that cardiologist who treats mitral valve repair, who's rated four stars or above, and who is based in Provo, Utah, mm -hmm. you can quickly pull all of that information together and spin up a page mm -hmm. that enables that person who is searching in that way to have a personalized experience. Mm -hmm. That's not easy to do if you don't have something that's headless. That's right. I heard like kayak. You know, that travel website, mm -hmm. they they have a headless configuration. They have like 150 different types of ways they present data depending on how you enter into their web presences. Isn't that crazy? But do, doesn't that? that make you a little bit scary in healthcare? Like, doesn't that scare you a little bit? A little bit. I feel like people are going to run to the hills and they're going to run into the cave and they're going to become the ostriches and say, nope, not us. Right, because we want to be known as that authoritative right. single source and mm -hmm. you come to us. And sure, I mean, I've seen in some configurations and some websites and I been exploring it myself to like maybe we create a different entry page mm -hmm. for a, a referring provider as opposed to a consumer as you know what what have you and I think that that's that's a, a step towards the right direction mm -hmm. but in this new world order of structured data you don't need that anymore no, do you you can just spin it so that whenever somebody is searching for whatever it is that they're searching for you can call upon the different data points and then pull it all together for that personalized experience. It's mind-blowing a little yeah, bit. It, yeah, my mind blew just a little bit. <laughs> and I'm also thinking about, like, that sounds tremendously difficult to do. But I don't think it is. I think 
first of all, the data is really difficult. Mm -hmm. That's where I hear everyone initially, they're fearful and they will drag their heels Mm -hmm. and they'll say, well, we're going to put a committee together. We're going to try to figure out what this mm-hmm. project is. We're going to get all of our data all pulled together. And then we're going to house it on premises because mm-hmm. that's really the way of the future, which it's not. Right. And then we're just going to take 10 years to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem yeah. because we need to do this faster. So once we get over the hurdle of the data, okay. then when we think about all of the different iterations of what people could be asking and how the information needs to come together on a single page and what the entry points are, that scares people. But it doesn't have to. There are organizations out there and there are different ways of thinking about this where we can pull all of this information together in a very seamless way. It doesn't have to be scary. But then it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It goes back to the data. Mm -hmm. You have to have the data and the relationships among the different data points to be able to even facilitate the next step. You make it sound simplistic, but I, I, I suppose, job. yeah, I suppose, <laughs> I'm supposed to. And you do a good job of <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> but if I were to start down this path, or if someone listening in wants to start down this path, where would where would we start? I mean, how would we start to look and 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 think about this? Because it's a little bit different than the way we think about that's, it now. That's a good question. It's so a lot of organizations will say, "Well, we don't have the data." Yeah. But they do. Mm. Data lives in a lot of different places. Mm. So. You can start by taking a look, especially if in marketing, Mm -hmm. you have a find a doctor on your website. There is no way that you don't. So you have data there and it's living somewhere. So it's either living in a credentialing platform that is dropping a nightly feed Mm -hmm. into a CMS. Right. Or it's living in the CMS or it's living within some sort of homegrown system in within marketing somewhere. Mm -hmm. That data lives somewhere. Mm -hmm. So there's at least something. Mm -hmm. So start there. Find your data there. Okay. And then figure out what kind of data points do you have and what kind of data points would you like to have. Mm -hmm. And then once you start looking at that, I think then it's time to start evaluating where can we house this data? Are there platforms we can house it in? And what should we be doing with it? Sure. But then what I would say is take a look at your analytics. So if you use, mm-hmm. utilize get Google or Adobe or any analytical program, take a look at what people are actually typing to get to your site right. today. That is a leading indicator of intent and a leading indicator of just what people need and want. That's external. Then take a look at your analytics on your website, your site search analytics, and your find a doctor analytics. Mm-hmm. So I love data stuff. So anytime right. I can look at analytics, it's super exciting for me. <laughs> but I would say take a look at that because you can see what people are searching for on site search. And then you can also see what people are searching for provider-wise. And mm-hmm. you'll start to see themes. And once you can pull all of that external analytics data, what's bringing people to you, the internal data, what, once somebody's on the site, what are they? What questions are they asking? What are they wanting? And then you can start to say, these are the themes I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of insurance questions. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I don't have that data in my master data set mm-hmm. that's either coming from credentialing or it's sitting in marketing. So now I have, I have a job to do. I need to go find out where that insurance information lives and I need to start pulling it in. So it's a step-by-step process. It's like eating an elephant. You do it yeah, one bite at a time. You just have to take one bite. Right? You, can't, you can't be afraid of the elephant. <laughs> That's actually an interesting way. I mean, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at how people are searching or find a doctor. Mm-hmm. And the intention is to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're tagging in. We're doing the taxonomy correctly so yeah. that people can find that. What you're then doing is you're basically building the roadmap towards this yeah. 
unfettered content. That's right. You are. And the best part about it is that as you continue to collect that information, you've now just built a much richer data set for for yourself Mm. and for the future. Mm. And then when you think about that, and then you think about how more people are finding information, let's say, on Google and other places, Mm -hmm. then you can really start to think through the relationships and then the discoverability once somebody is searching for that doctor who treats mitral valve repair, who's rated four stars or above, who's located in Provo, Utah. If they're doing that search on Google, now you can easily try to build a page that surfaces, because it's schema tag, you could surface it first, hopefully, because nobody can really control that but Google, but surfaces it first so that particular doctor is the one that surfaces that the patient can click on it and go right back to that page, that provider's page, and it fulfills all of the criteria points of that search query. So effectively, you don't need your homepage anymore. Sort of just (laughs) distributed. Yeah, Yeah, I I like to think about the website being upside down. So people are no longer going to a website to the homepage and then drilling down by clicking on menus and links and then taking an action. They're finding you through the bottom parts of your website. And they're coming to you. And as long as you can get them to come to you, the homepage itself is less important, but there are people who will go there. So how do you you make sure that for those people who go to the website, you're giving them the the ultimate experience? But if you structure your data the right way, then the ultimate experience is... A Same Google thing. Google-like, it's a Google-like search. search bar, right? It's yeah. simple. It's wow. simple. <laughs> wow. So in effect, what you're saying in the same sentence, you're saying your website, your CMS, the way we think of it today really doesn't matter. Right. But it actually becomes very important because it's upside down. It's upside down. And it's all based on structured data. Exactly. And do you think that in the future, I mean, it's not only voice, it's like, who knows, Internet of Things. Now you can have your, your, you know, your microwave search your website. You can. Google is now in a billion devices. Yeah. And that's crazy. Google Assistant is now in a billion devices. And that's not necessarily just a phone or a Google Home. That's all of these different places. It's in your car. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. But there's also my Google Maps. I'm one of those Google Maps local testers or I'm not exactly a local guide. Mm -hmm. And I just got a beta invite for AR Maps experience. How cool would that be in healthcare? So what if you could house some of that information in a structured way that then when you walked into a health system, all of a sudden, then you could do some wayfinding associated with it, which would then give you some uh, AR related experiences as you're looking at your phone, walking down the hall. That's crazy. There's crazy. You don't, I don't know what else is coming. It's, It's voice now, but AR, VR, all of these other things are coming. And then this table that we're sitting at might be able to talk to us at one point. These chairs might be able to talk to us or we talk to them. Mm-hmm. It's a scary world. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. But but I mean, ultimately, what you're doing is you're aligning it to whatever that future experience might be. Yes, and right? again, it's all back to the data. Mm-hmm. There, nothing can really be successful unless you actually have structured data that can feed into whatever experience is happening now or in the future. That's awesome! Wow. Carrie, every time I get together with you, I learn so much and I think so much. My brain hurts a little bit now, but in a good way. It's always fun. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, when we when we first met, you know, today, we didn't even think that we were going to be talking about this. No. But it's funny how that this that here we are. So, Carrie, for people listening in. Yes. 
that can't find you because obviously they don't know how to use Google. What are ways that they can get a hold of you and reach you online? The best way to get in touch with me is via LinkedIn. So Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, and my last name is Lichen, L-I-K-E-N. Okay, we'll link to you in the show notes for sure. And also link out to the blogs in which you publish a lot of great, interesting stuff. And you're you're about to publish another article that I'm going to be looking at. I know, exactly. So we'll link to that so people can listen in for that. Carrie, um, uh, anytime I get a chance to get in front of you, microphone or not, I always love to talk to you. But I definitely will try to get a microphone every time, you know, anytime (laughs) in the future. It's always a pleasure. It's super fun, especially face-to-face. Exactly, it is. Thanks so much. Thank you. Awesome interview. And uh, once again, all these years later, special thanks to Carrie for coming on the show. Uh, look forward to actually having her and Matt uh, back soon. So she was she was great. Uh, this third one uh, that we're going to turn to, uh, Chris, one that you, uh, you picked out, right? That's right. This interview was with someone who was a good friend of mine, Chris Hemphill, who now is with Actium Health. This episode actually was one of the first episodes we did read in which we started to address, you and I started to address the public health crisis. So that means we're going back to episode 164 from March 25th of 2020, the Mm. very first time we talked about the COVID pandemic. It's called Marketing During a Public Health Crisis. Now, what happened was, is I interviewed Chris about you know, a variety of different ways that you can actually use data to start to understand your customer better, to start to even predict what they're going to be doing. Because, you know, Chris, as you as you all may know, he has his own podcast right now. He talks a lot about data and analytics and how to use that as a way to understand your customer. Man, that seems like forever ago. Um, but, but realistically, I mean, a year and a half, Coming uh, 20 months or something like that, maybe uh, coming up on two years, I guess. But again, I think this is something that holds true. And, you know, marking you're in a public health crisis, uh, but you could probably fill in the blank uh, for a number of different things that may be happening in your community. Certainly, it's this is around COVID and, and what we've all been through, but uh, some great insights. And, you know, really like Chris, certainly. And uh, really feel like he's got, got some good things to say. And so appreciate his insights. And, Let's, uh, let's go back to the beginning of COVID. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast, and today... I am talking with a good, dear friend of mine. I, Chris, you and I have gotten to know each other over the years, and I know that you also are a fan of our show. So I'm so excited to have you here today. Chris Hempel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. I hope it doesn't get confusing with us having the same name. We'll manage through it, I think so. I think it'll be fine. Um, so Chris, I like I said, I've known you for a number of years now, and I'm very excited about some of your background and history, but some people listening in may not know about that. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your experience in this space? 
My background started in uh, sales and operations at a healthcare analytics firm. In that time, the questions, as they became more and more complex, and I, of course, was interested in all the the stuff that I had studied in economics and things like that uh, back in college, it required some additional expertise. So at the same time, as we were trying to identify which hospitals were most likely to make which types of movements and things like that, it required uh, deeper analytics to things like decision trees and random forests and things like that. So ultimately, ended up uh, going down a data science path, working with uh, currently with uh, Symphony RM as the uh, director of AI and analytics on the client-facing side. So the background and focus is now on helping health systems to evaluate data products and understand how to make uh, good decisions with data products, and also performing uh, data science and analytics on things like what's the value of uh, physician outreach meetings to uh, referrals and other patterns that, that we might want to see from physicians or, or learn from, our, from physicians in our market, or what are the implications of certain types of appointments or different social determinants in terms of people's likelihood to not show up for appointments and things like that. So went from an internal sales and operations side to a more client-facing data science end. I think that's awesome. And, and that's another reason why I think you and I connect, because we're both data nerds at heart, right? We uh, we like data and analytics to drive decision-making. I think that's awesome. And I think that, you know, in many cases, as you and I know, working with hospitals and health systems over the years, that is sometimes a little bit of a challenge because most people that are in the marketing or in communications or even population health or wherever they may be, that may not be their first leaning, right? They might not lean towards analytics or data. Yet in this day and age, data and analytics is so proliferous, right? We have so much information that's out there. It's just really making sense of what to do with that data. Is that fair to say? That's a billion percent fair to say. Uh, the, the way that I see it is uh, we've basically gotten a deluge of data starting in 2009 with, with meaningful use. And the, the issue is we're acquiring all these different data sources. It lives in a bunch of different places. And even when we unite, the, uh, unite everything in, t- in terms of an EDW, that's still hundreds of thousands of patients and, well, and, and hundreds of characteristics that need to be compared and uh, considered to determine who's the most likely candidate to, to need this type of communication or who's most likely to no-show for an appointment. Even though we have the data at our fingertips, when we get to the issue of combining it from the multiple sources that it might be from our marketing automation systems or EMRs or uh, data that comes in uh, through claims or other third-party sources, when it comes to making sense of all that data, we're we're completely at a loss if if we're going to ask marketers to wear an additional hat as a data scientist slash data engineer. So completely agree that we've, we've been deluged by data. And even having that data over these years, it's been extremely hard for most organizations to make sense of it and use of it for the value of the patient. You actually had an interesting point how healthcare marketers don't necessarily have to become data scientists. You, you actually refer to them as data enthusiasts. So I'm interested in um, exploring that with you today in, the, in today's conversation. I, I reached out to you because I read this really interesting article that you posted on LinkedIn. You also have it on the blog at Symphony RM that's called Hospital Marketing with Algorithms Aim Higher Than Netflix. Can you uh, start off and maybe share a little bit of your thoughts of what, what, what inspired you to, to write this blog post? Yeah, yeah, let's go into that. And, and it really ties into uh, the, the whole data enthusiast concept. To train to become a data scientist, uh, it requires picking up a, a, 
a, a lot of skills um, in terms of statistics, in terms of programming, and being able to use those to, to extract value from a bunch of different data sources. To be called artificial intelligence is a very hands-on process. What marketers are, are being asked to do across multiple data sources, it's simply not tenable to take somebody whose expertise is in fostering communications uh, to then say, okay, learn Python, R, SAS, all these other, other platforms, and learn all these various packages that are related to data science and uh, start extracting meaning from that. The time spent there would be better spent understanding fostering relationships and managing, ma- managing content. But it's still necessary because of, uh, because of the analytics component. With all these requirements around data, uh, becoming a data enthusiast means not necessarily picking up a programming language and, and going into detail and learning all these things, but really as a decision maker or as a leader in healthcare, understand that the role of data is, is extremely important in healthcare in terms of, uh, like when I said, aim higher than Netflix, not a slight on Netflix or anything like that, but what Netflix is optimizing for is for you to watch as much content as possible for as long as possible. So it's, it's optimizing for you to click and uh, to, to click as much as you can and, and stay watching as much as you can so they can maximize their revenue. In healthcare, especially with the proliferation of value-based care, the idea isn't necessarily to get as much content as possible, but to aim patients at the care that is going to give them the best outcomes. That, that's not saying we, we want people to have as many repeats visits as possible and things like that. That, that would be the, like the, the older way of thinking. But the newer way of thinking is getting the right care to the right people and in the right amounts. Yeah. And that point, right, of getting the right care to the right people in the right time, right ways, right amounts, as you said, that really speaks to the fact that now the role of marketing is kind of shifting within a hospital and health system. And I know Reed and I have been talking about this for a long time. We as marketers have to kind of evolve from the little M marketing, which is more promotional, to what I like to call the big M marketing, which is more towards the holistic sense of trying to drive those interactions in the right way, understanding our customers better so that we can actually deliver them the information that they need. I like the way that you worded it, especially understand our customers better, because I, I kind of missed that in, in the, the previous comment. What I really wanted to focus on as a data enthusiast is how do I know whether or not I am understanding my, my uh, patients, uh, my customers better? Let, let's say that I invest in a CRM or an EMR, and it tells me that these people have risk for uh, this particular illness. There's a risk to sending out communications that are based on what that model is telling me about that patient. So let's say that uh, some that there, there's a model that identifies uh, who is likely to be at risk for or, or, or need breast cancer services in, in a particular uh, market. Well, the question then is, okay, so, well, how accurately does that model perform? And it, honestly, in, in all the evaluations that I've been a part of, I have not really seen the right questions being asked to tease out how effectively models perform. Some things that uh, like as data enthusiasts and healthcare marketers might be able to start considering are to ask the tougher questions around how well does this model perform in terms of false positives? Uh, Like there's, it's a statistical term, type one error, false positive, whatever. But really when you, when you get down to it, when you ask uh, what my false positive rate is, it's really saying, how often is this model flagging people as needing this service 
but they didn't actually need this service because there's a chain of events that happens after you've decided to communicate with somebody uh, on the like with the expectation that they'll need a service. If it is a false positive, like a, 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 a excellent, excellent. If your if your model is finding people that have clinical need and getting that getting the right information and getting the right people in for the right services. But if you don't, if if you're if you're telling the wrong people to come in, then they might come in for a uh, screening that might also lead to another false positive that might need to lead to unnecessary procedures and lack of trust in the healthcare organization and in the communications that are coming from that organization. And all this talk about false positives, et cetera, I mean, I can't help but kind of parallel it against our current day day and age, right, Chris, where we're dealing with COVID responses and, we're, and communication is becoming very critical with our audiences. Is that resonating with you as well? Yeah, 100%, Chris. Uh, that, that, that really hits on a, a really close topic because the amount of testing that we're able to do in our like current state of our healthcare like ideally, we'd be like we'd be able to uh, test for uh, test everyone like South Korea, but current state is there are limitations. We were talking a little bit beforehand, and you were talking about a limitation. Certain healthcare entity they could only test for five hundred a day. So the question then is, which five hundred people should receive tests? Because if we're targeting the entire market, like basically we, we have a much more demand than test available. So it, it becomes a question of we, we don't want to target the wrong people to have these tests because then there's a cost that if we're, we'll, we'll actually get into an, another topic, false negatives, which are people who have a clinical need that miss out on those communications. So when you say that, what do you mean exactly? Just as a contrast, a false positive is saying, hey, you need this thing. And it turns out you didn't need this thing. A false negative is saying, this person doesn't need this communication. So we're not even going to send out any, we're not going to send anything uh, to them anyway, but then it turns out that they actually did need the communication. Part of the modeling process and part, uh, part of the data science aspect is to run tests that identify the, like based on all the parameters, everything that somebody's setting up to uh, identify patients, whether it be simply like taking some, uh, some like slicing and dicing based on, based on some clinical information or creating an AI model that scores millions of patients and and uh, does the calculation that way. At the end of the day, you still need to uh, you still need to have an understanding of how often does this model falsely flag the people that uh, people that don't need the services, and how much is the opportunity cost with a high false negative rate? What's what the cost there is is that you're not communicating to people that have a, a specific clinical need. So in that case, there are people that have need or, or market opportunity that the model is missing. So it's important to understand in an evaluation of a model of uh, an AI approach to reach patients, what the false positive and what the false negative rate is. So I think that that concept of false positives and false negatives is critical and it's important. And it also kind of outlines the fact that now marketing is extending to like things like population health and other other segments. But before we get into that, in this blog post, you actually outlined some other questions that we need to ask of the data, which I like the way you phrased that, right? With the questions we need to ask of the data. One of the things is you, you, you outlined was about right consumption, right? Clinical necessary preventions and interventions. Um, and I think that that, that speaks to to understand 
understanding also not only if they there is a need, but the right type of, of consumption of that service or that need that a hospital provides. That's where the modeling and uh, like the, the use of the algorithms and AI stands in stark contrast to what we see from uh, quote unquote consumer type industries. When we're talking about encouraging the right consumption, we're not trying to uh, get people to get the most constantly. Like uh, healthcare is not, and, and especially with the move to value-based care, health, healthcare is not about getting people to consume absolutely as much as possible. It's about understanding what people's specific clinical needs are or what they're most likely at risk for. And taking the, like understanding that far enough ahead of time so that preventive measures such as education or uh, such as particular types of screenings or early interventions can occur before this ends up being something that is more costly to the patient and more costly to the health system over time. So we're not trying to sell the most. We're not trying to put the most out there in healthcare. The stark difference, the, the one thing that you'd want to take from that article is that it's not about optimizing for clicks or anything like that. It's about delivering very specific interventions to specific populations. I think that's really important. And then one last point that you also brought up is about bias in data. And and I know Reed and I have kind of hit on that before, but talk to me about your perspective about how do we make sure that our data is not biased based against socioeconomic factors? What are some some examples that you've had uh, doing that? There's a couple of biases that, that could come into play. The three that I would focus on in terms of bias are cherry picking, survivorship bias, and the McNamara fallacy. Cherry picking is the tendency to go into the data with the question already answered in our mind. And we use the data to look for the answer that we want. There's a lot of cases where people will mistrust numbers, especially like if, if you're presenting to somebody who's in finance or has a, a, has a highly data-driven background, they'll start asking questions that uncover the fact that maybe cherry-picking may have occurred. And if, if they don't ask those questions, then the harm is decisions are, are made off of uh, you know, something where we brought our own confirmation bias, like we looked, looked through data and brought our own confirmation bias to the table. Survivorship bias is the idea, uh, so I like to bring up this analogy. In World War II, someone was asked to uh, inspect British airplanes that had uh, come back and identify where the bullet holes were so they could, dep- so they could identify where to place additional armor so that, uh, you know, the, those planes that came back with those bullet holes, they knew, like, they were basically using data to say, okay, well, we'll protect against those places. So, so the problem with that approach is if they're looking at the planes that came back, this is survivorship bias, by the way, if they're looking at the planes that came back and looking at where to put those bullet holes, uh, where to put the armor, and that they're using uh, where they were shot to uh, determine where to put the armor, then they're missing out on the whole population of planes that didn't come back, that didn't make it through the process. The challenge, like ultimately, the data you get within healthcare is going to be biased towards the people that were able to make it in for a particular illness. If whatever social factors keep you from thinking that it's acceptable to go to a to go to a health, uh, go to a hospital or you don't think that you can afford it, then that takes you out of the analysis that that's that's being performed. It leads to some very powerful ethical questions for what what happens in in data driven marketing. And as marketers, the, the biggest piece of advice is to understand. Uh, 
you know, like look to, is to understand the socio socioeconomic factors that that lead to people coming in for care and um, identify like ba- basically like when, when modeling the focus is to only uh, is to like develop models that are based specifically on clinical factors, but then do outreach that's based on socioeconomic factors. I, I love the analogy, Chris, that you're that you're bringing up, and it really uh, you know that leads to a big point here that you have that is sort of an underlying theme. I think that you're you're kind of presenting here is that as you highlighted in the article, you said technology should make complex hospital marketing demands simple. That kind of leads to this topic that you and I have talked about too, which is simplexity, a kind of a little buzz term there. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do we how do we take such a complex data model that you're outlining and really make it to uh, simplify it, so to speak? Also, yeah, also a really good question because we we started out by saying that a marketer should not go and well, should not be expected to go and get a PhD in data science. So that's Point number one is that, that there's a ton of complexity there. If every marketer was spending all their time doing those tasks, then they don't have the time to uh, forge relationships, manage content strategy, and all the other things that are important to making an outreach strategy work. When it comes to that, basically, there's uh, I think the easiest way to say it is that there are uh, three overarching types of analytics. There's the, the descriptive analytics, which say... Uh, this is the average number of patients that we see per day, and this is the, uh, the their average age range, and everything like that. That's basically saying th- this is what is. Then there's predictive analytics, which predictive analytics is saying, okay, so based on the demographics of this area, we expect these people will come in at this rate to these particular centers. Okay, so we're making predictions, but the value the value really comes from not just like describing and understanding the market and knowing what's going to happen. But the next phase is prescriptive analytics. That's where actions come in, is understanding, given all these criteria, given this complex information that we have on the contracts that we're serving, the value-based slash fee-for-service balance that we're trying to walk, and the characteristics of the patients in this particular market, their risk factors for particular illnesses or their likelihood to respond to email versus text. Given all that information, given, uh, given everything that we have, What's the most critical point that if we had 30 seconds to make a decision on, on, on what somebody should do next, what the, what's the most critical point that should be positioned for that patient? So it's an understanding of taking all that complexity, all those risk factors and everything like that, and turning it into next steps and actions. Direct this person to this webinar or send this person this email or defer this appointment to a time that would be safer for them based on the volume of uh, patients that we're getting that might have COVID risk. Like it's taking all those complex factors and turning them into simple steps that marketers, population health, physician outreach should be uh, positioning for their constituents. That kind of underscores the entire conversation that we've been having here, right? About how we can use this rich sets of data and this better understanding of our customers to help them uh, guide them to the right the right types of care right and this isn't this isn't about like salesy marketing now what we're talking about is actually using data AI etc to to align them to where to the right kind of care options and that sets that premise of what we started this conversation with Chris I think this is really really fascinating I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate it. Ever since posting that blog and so, some of the comments that I got, the passion here is if we're if we get to where we're 
reducing those false positives, the outreach that we really shouldn't be doing and reducing those false negatives, like I, I think that by focusing on those, ma- those metrics, it can help marketing regain trust in, in the community. And that's such a timely topic in, you know, in this crazy times that we live in. We can't abandon that, that we're living in a whole new era now where that becomes super critical. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And let's have you back on, okay? All right. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. All right. And again, thanks to uh, to Chris Carrier, Matt, but uh, certainly appreciative of of their time, even if it was some years ago in Matt's case. But, you know, I think this just shows the the depth and and breadth of of really who we've been fortunate to have on the show and to know and, and to call friends of the podcast over the years. And you know, here we are 250 episodes in, um, that's a lot of Wednesdays in a row. I'm pretty sure that's 250 of them. <laughs> and so, uh, we're just super appreciative of everybody's uh, willingness to tune in and listen and give us feedback and thoughts. And it's just been, uh, it's been great. And here's to another 250, right? Reed. That's right. Whew, boy, that, that seems like a lot more work, but, uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep plugging away for sure. As long as folks are listening, uh, the plan is to, to keep on, uh, keep rocking along. You know, we will have some other special episodes as the year ends, like we always do some more to come on that. Certainly would love for you to, to, to visit the website, sign up for the TPS report, all that kind of fun stuff up over at touchpoint.health. Hopefully everybody has a great, uh, great few days, great time off to spend some time, friends, family, all that kind of fun stuff. We'd love to still hear from you. Certainly really just wanted to say thank you for supporting us for 250 episodes. Uh, for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. And like we have for 250 times, we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.